You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Episode 8.1 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I am your moderator, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have regular panelist Lisa Cordles and guest panelist Katie Grubbs. Thanks for being on the show today, ladies, and welcome, Katie. Let's introduce ourselves before we get started. Lisa? My name is Lisa Cordles, and I work in the online department at Crown College as an Old Testament theology professor. I am also currently doing a lot of writing, and I love writing about Vladimir Nabokov lately, I guess, <laughs> and I just love authoring articles and essays in the literature world as well. Thanks. Katie? Hi, um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I currently am teaching English and also serving as director of the Writing Center at Central Christian College in McPherson, Kansas, where I also work with my husband, David Grubbs, who listeners might recognize from the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm writing my dissertation right now through the University of Georgia, and it's focusing on the early modern child elegy in both in England and in America, and also giving a lot of my time lately to taking care of our child. We have a, a daughter who turned two this weekend, and she is a lot of fun and a handful. So, Thanks, Katie. Uh, I, as I said, am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. Um, I, like Katie, am working on a dissertation, uh, but through Florida State University. And my dissertation is on young adult novels that adapt Shakespearean plots for teen girls. Uh, And like Lisa, I also work part-time at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. So, uh, let's get down to business, shall we? Today's episode is the first in a series on biblical manhood and relationships. Last month we talked about biblical womanhood, so we're going to talk a little bit about biblical manhood this month. And the first book we're going to discuss is Mark and Grace Driscoll's Real Marriage, The Truth About Sex, Friendship, and Life Together. So we're going to start with some broad strokes, background kind of things. And the first uh, broad stroke we're going to discuss is um, Mark Driscoll's general public persona. Um, most of you listening to this show have probably at least heard of him. Um, like Rachel Held Evans, who we talked about last month, Driscoll is a kind of love him or hate him uh, persona. He's a, a celebrity pastor, um, in that he is a pastor who is a celebrity, not that he is a pastor to celebrities. So... When I was tasked with uh, telling you about Driscoll's reputation, the first thing I did when I was researching it was type uh, Mark Driscoll is into Google just to see what people were searching for. I recognize this is not a scientific research method, but I thought it would be interesting. So the first result I got was Mark Driscoll issues, uh, which has a negative connotation but isn't super terrible. The next two results were Mark Driscoll is an idiot and Mark Driscoll is a douchebag. So, safe to say, there are a lot of people who don't really like this guy. Uh, These dissenters fall into a couple of main camps. 
First, um, there are people who think his contemporary dress and his frank discussion of things like swear words and sex positions are undignified or inappropriate for a pastor. Um, second, you've got the feminist blogosphere. Um, more on that in a later episode this summer. Uh, but you've got the feminist blogosphere who basically say um, he's the newer, cooler version of the same old repressive religious patriarchy. Um, and thirdly, uh, there are people who object to his participation uh, in the kind of Christianity industry um, that, that as a famous pastor, sort of his medium overwhelms his message and, uh, and he gets in the way of, uh, of the Gospels, of the more important stuff. So that's the negative side. Uh, to the degree that Driscoll has a positive reputation in some religious circles, uh, that too is mostly tied to either or both of these two things. One, his unorthodox discussions of contemporary issues, which I mentioned as a negative uh, before. Some people um, are really into that, think it's a good way to reach people. Or two, his desire to reclaim real, and please read quotation marks into that usage, masculinity in the church, um, something he feels is missing or had been missing in previous years, previous religious traditions. Here's Driscoll on the subject of masculinity in the first chapter of Real Marriage. Uh, he's talking about a pastor that he had in his youth that changed his view of pastors. Uh, the pastor seemed to really love his wife, and they had a faithful and fun marriage. The previous church I had attended was Catholic, with a priest who seemed to be a gay alcoholic. He was the last person on earth I wanted to be like. To a young man, a life of poverty, celibacy, living at the church, and wearing a dress was more frightful than going to hell. So I stopped going to church somewhere around junior high. But this pastor was different. He had been in the military, had earned a few advanced degrees, and was smart. He was humble. He bow-hunted. He had sex with his wife. He knew the Bible. He was not religious. So that, to me, is a pretty reductive view of both religion and masculinity, um, but we will talk more about those things later in the discussion. Um, Driscoll also has associations with traditional gender roles in other ways. Um, he's worked with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which we've talked about in previous episodes. And he's also good buddies uh, with systematic theologian Wayne Grudem, who is known for popularizing uh, complementarian theology in broader circles. So... That's Driscoll's uh, reputation in a nutshell, and now Katie is going to talk to us a little bit about um, the book's reviews and reception more specifically. Thanks so much, Victoria. Uh, that was a great introduction. And um, I, to start with, I tried to, uh, we had begun, began with two reviews that we were going to look at for this podcast. One um, more positive and one more negative. And so in the interest of trying to, you know, round out a little bit and find a few more to talk about, I ended up finding kind of two more, one also more positive and one also more negative. Um, I didn't do this on purpose also, but in the end, the four that I'm going to reference this evening are two by, written by women and two written by men. So it's a pretty even, even road um, and an even spread. 
So one of the two um, pos more positive reviews that I want to talk about was written by Susan Weiss Bauer at Books and Culture. And she took, um, to me, uh, an interesting view on the book, which is that she, she, call, she mainly says positive things about the book, but then also seems to suggest that the book is harmless um, in a way, harmless um, and, and, and more conventional than, than the book seems to believe that it is. So she, just to, in a nutshell, she calls the book perfectly adequate, which may be kind of damning with faint praise, as my husband said when I read that aloud to him. But she says the book is perfectly adequate, which, and that while it has issues of presentation, um, that it still presents plenty of good ideas. Things like talk about your feelings, have date nights, be friends, sex is good. Okay, just kind of basics like that. She did take issue with the book's overt complementarianism, what she called questionable exegesis, and also an, uh, an, a kind of inability to separate biblical kind of truth from cultural norms. And her example of that was Driscoll's insistence that it's the biblical pattern for a man to leave his parents' house and establish himself in a career before marriage, which she says does not really at all fit with Jewish culture at the time, wherein men would usually remain in their parents' homes until marrying, just things like that. And um, But in the end, you know, she says that though the book is nothing groundbreaking, and though even the kind of sex chapters aren't really breaking any new ground that hasn't already been written, that the, the biggest draw in the book is the fact that it contains Mark Driscoll, celebrity pastor. And for that reason, that part of it, his personal story makes it different. And in the end, she says, you know, this advice is not something you couldn't get from any long-term married couple in your church who's happy, but that, you know, that still has some good things, still has some good ideas that could help. So that was one of the positive reviews. The other positive review that I found was from Aaron Armstrong, writing for the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition is um, known to be complementarian um, in their theology in general. And so, you know, perhaps might be expected to approve of the book, the book's complementarian aspects, that is. Um, Armstrong really, really likes what Mark and Grace say about the importance of friendship, which actually is one of the one of the parts of the books, uh, the book that I really did enjoy. And he also really seemed to find chapter five encouraging. Chapter five is the book called, or there's a chapter called "Taking Out the Trash." It's on the necessity for repentance and forgiveness in marriage, and he said that 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 chapter was very encouraging, and that and very important. Um, so, you know, that was, that was a positive thing. There were some negative things that he, that he felt like were happening in the book, but, um, in all, he, he seemed to feel very positively about it. He particularly liked the way that in the respectful wife chapter that Grace kind of called out wives who badmouth their husbands, but also kind of called out a cultural trend in some parts of popular culture of portraying husbands and fathers to be kind of buffoonish or goofy like that, he seemed to think that that was also positive. And in the end, he said that those are, there, though there are some negatives, that the, quote, objective good far outweighs the questionable content. So that was the other kind of positive review. On the other side, however, um, I found two, two, well, I found one negative review, and then we had planned to talk about another. The first one that I'm going to talk about is very interesting because it's from Wendy. I don't, I don't know her last name because she doesn't give it. 
on the blog, but um, Wendy, who runs the, the website Practical Theology for Women, which is a great website that I actually really enjoy. And she actually used to lead women's ministry at Mars Hill Church. So she has a kind of personal experience of the Driscoll family that is kind of underlying the things that she says. So um, Wendy um, has this background with Mars Hill Church and seems, seems in her view to be very concerned with not making it too personal. And so interestingly, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about that side of it, but she also interestingly had her husband review the book too on her website. And I think in an effort to make sure that there's balance in case she, you know, went too personal, which I, I don't think that she did. But she said that um, she said mostly negative things about about the book. But her main issue with the book, and this is something I think I'm sure we're going to talk about later, is that she really takes issue with the fact that in the book, there's this consistent trend of Grace Driscoll facing and dealing with her baggage and her mistakes in her past, but Mark Driscoll not doing the same thing, not facing his past, not facing his baggage, um, but rather just letting his wife, quote, fix her issues to make their marriage better. Um, she also seemed very concerned that, that she, as she says, there's lots of reference to the Bible, but little exposition of scripture in the book. And in fact, the, the, the lengthiest section in the book of going through um, anything verse by verse is actually just about the Song of Solomon, which is a favorite of Mark and Grace, um, as is clear from the sex chapters in the book. And she also felt like that the book is not gospel-centered, that sex is too central in the text, and finished by saying, and this, this kind of made me say, ouch, but it's completely true. She said she really felt like that Mark Driscoll would benefit from preaching on Hosea, but that if he did, she felt like that he would see himself as the hero of the story rather than seeing Christ as the hero and himself as the person who needs to be redeemed or saved, which I thought was a, a very interesting way of encapsulating her issues with the book and also, I think, some of the same issues that I was seeing. So the last review that I want to talk about just quickly is actually the one that I found that was the most negative, surprisingly um, written by Heath Lambert, theology professor, in the Journal of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Again, that's kind of surprising because, as Victoria said a moment ago, he, Mark Driscoll has these ties with the council and uh, positive relationships with some of its members. So I was, I was very surprised to find in their journal this review. Um, so Lambert feels like in the very first page of his review, he comes right out the gate and says that he feels this book is dangerous and troubling. Those are his words, and that it will cause confusion in marriages. He also said that, in his opinion, many of the negative reviews of the book were still too positive, which I thought was a very strong statement. He says there is some good in the book, but that it's covered or contradicted by the bad. Um, as, as an English teacher, I appreciated something that he talked about, which he also pointed out more than other reviewers, that a lot of the problems in the book are, are located in the book's disorganization of delivery, that it's confusing at times, that it's incoherent, and so therefore not very effective, even when positive things are being said. And I, I appreciated that. He also, and also that he felt like some advice was impractical. He pointed out that having helped counsel people um, away from pornography in the past, that he said he felt like that, you know, statistics aren't usually the things that turn people away from porn. And so he felt like that was kind of an impractical way of dealing with the problem in the porn chapter is just to throw statistics at it. 
But um, in the end, I think that he was mainly focused in his review on bad exegesis and how much of their how much of their justification for staying in their marriage, even through the bad times, was based not in biblical ideals of the permanence of marriage, but in kind of mystical experiences, like God telling Mark to marry Grace, God telling Mark to continue to protect and love Grace, things like that. And he also, like Wendy at Practical Theology, says that um, it's a problem that Mark says men should deal with their issues and, and, and show repentance, but that Mark never reveals if he's ever repented from the sins that were on his side in their marriage. So I thought that it was uh, a, a very surprisingly negative review, but I, I really thought that the way that he, he dealt with it, it was his, contrary to the book's organization, Lambert's review was actually very organized, which I appreciated. So that's just a very quick and hopefully not hopefully not too long, review of just a kind of basic responses that I saw. And one more thing I wanted to mention is that th all these reviews were from 2012, which is when the book came out. But recently, like since the beginning of 2014, there's been renewed interest in and response to the book because there have been some fairly well substantiated charges of plagiarism about portions of the book. And so it's actually been receiving some renewed albeit negative attention in the very recent past. So I just, I thought I should probably throw that out there in case listeners didn't know that. So that's, that's my kind of rundown. Yeah, good. Thanks, Katie. I wanted to mention the plagiarism dust up. And also in addition to that, um, recent allegations that um, Driscoll's church ordered something like hundreds of thousands of copies in order to get the book on the bestseller list. Yeah. Uh, uh -huh. So, so a couple of a couple of recent controversies there um, have have brought the book back into um, kind of the zeitgeist. So, thanks for the coverage of those reviews, um, and I, I do think we're going to cover some of those things a little bit more. But just in case we don't, I do want to agree with what you're saying about. Um, the book's kind of uneven focus on Grace and her sins. I, I feel like there's a lot of kind of um, bashing of her in the book, despite the fact that she um, is a victim of sexual abuse and talks really frankly about um, how it was hard for her to overcome that in marriage. Uh, so I, I hope we get a chance to um, to talk about that more. So, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit more um, as we get further into our discussion about the book's preface and introduction and what they're doing? Okay, well, the preface and introduction for me are a very standard pre – the preface definitely is a very standard preface for this type of book. They're going to tell you how not to read the book uh, before you start reading it. And what I like about this type of preface is that, yes – it does get people's frame of mind moving toward not looking out the window at the people they know who need to read the book and instead looking at yourself and why you need to read the book. That is good. <laughs> you know, we want to move away from judgment and judging others. And I thought that was good. You know, he talks about, you know, don't look at your spouse's shortcomings and sins as planks and yours as specs. And I thought that was that was a good thing to put out there. And I do think he's right in one thing that he does kind of sell in the preface is that often when you read a book about a married about marriage, there usually is blame going one way or the other, if that makes any sense. But it 
but he didn't even really live up to his own preface in the book. So um, it was just interesting that he's telling people not to read the book and look at their spouse and say, oh, this book is for you, not me. I'm good. I'm good to go. You need to read it. You need to fix yourself so that we can have a good marriage, that kind of thing. Um, so was it effective? Yes and no. As a standard introduction that tells you how not to read a book and a Christian book like this, Sure, I guess it works. Um, I just didn't see anything interesting or new here. And it kind of made me not want to read the rest of the book because it seems like everyone writes it this way now. You know, don't read this book for this reason. Don't read this book for this reason. Do read it for this reason. I don't know. It, it's an interesting way to do a preface these days. And um, I'm not really sure it's even all that effective anymore just because everyone's doing it. Okay, interesting. Yeah, we, we sort of do um, live, I think we talked about this on our TV episode too, um, that we do kind of live in an age of the anti-hero in that way. We're sort of used to irony and snark and negativity. So maybe uh, maybe that kind of cultural thing has, has bled over. Uh, that's an interesting point. So in talking about the book proper, we're going to let its structure be our guide. Um, this book has three parts. Part one is on marriage, part two is on sex, and part three is on uh, the last day, how to reverse engineer your marriage. Uh, so Katie is going to go first and tell us about uh, two chapters or important uh, themes from the marriage section. Okay. Thanks, Victoria. So I... It was kind of difficult choosing chapters in that there were three different chapters that I felt like deserved extra attention. Um, the chapters on the importance of being, friends, of being friends with your spouse and having friendship in marriage and the chapter about the importance of repentance, I felt like were both great. I mean, you know, or were, were both good. Those were the parts that I agreed the most with and also that I felt like were the least controversial. So those I'm not really going to say too much about, but... I will say that the friendship chapter probably has the most going for it of any of any chapter in the book, at least to my mind. And they seemed to Mark and Grace seem to believe that that is something that is not encouraged enough in many marriages. So I think that that's positive. But the two two chapters that I'm going to focus on are chapter one, which is called New Marriage, Same Spouse, and also chapter three, which is called Men in Marriage because of our focus on manhood in this particular episode. So chapter one, new marriage, same spouse is very important because it's the chapter where so much of the autobiographical story of Mark and Grace Driscoll's marriage and their struggles comes out. And it kind of sets the tone, at least for me, it set the tone for the whole rest of the book because every kind of encouragement or tenet or method given in the rest of the book I was, you know, as I read each of those things, I was constantly measuring it back to their actual experience and if how that worked out for them. So in that way, the, the autobiographical narrative of chapter one kind of colors the rest or, or could for some readers. For me, it did. Maybe not for everybody. But some kind of consistent things that come out in this first chapter that are interesting but also potentially troubling and also have implications for Driscoll's kind of view of manhood are that as they describe their, their youthful lives, 
um, leading up to when they met each other and then when they met and then began their marriage. Grace definitely has, a, to me, a tendency to make her youthful life almost sound worse maybe than it actually was. She talked about her family having a tendency to pretend everything was okay when it really wasn't and how she didn't really understand her sin and her need for repentance. And so there's a lot of humility there. Whereas Mark, when he describes his past, makes, um, almost makes it sound better than maybe it was. He talks about coming from a really rough family with, with some dangerous people in it, but kind of doesn't seem to feel like he has any baggage from that, which is, is very strange to me. Um, and he kind of presents this narrative in which even while not a Christian, he was still basically a stand-up guy. You know, he tells stories about uh, declining a, a free senior trip with lots of booze and women because he was already together with Grace and he didn't want to dishonor her and how, you know, he was the only guy at the frat party who didn't drink. And so the next morning he walked home a poor girl who'd been taken advantage of and had no clothes. I mean, it's just story after story about Mark being in a stand up guy. Um, and so that, I think, is is kind of building into the kind of Grace is has problems and issues, but Mark, he was doing his thing and he was okay. That kind of, you know, dichotomy, like Victoria mentioned before. And this is where um, he lays down kind of his masculinity definition by negation that Victoria quoted, right? He, he has this image from his youth, this guy that he didn't want to be like, this guy that he perceived as effeminate. And so he's going to be everything else. He's going to, you know, bow hunt and make babies and, you know, all that stuff that Victoria said. And so as the, the story progresses in chapter one, we get this narrative of Mark and Grace getting together when he still wasn't a Christian. She was a very young Christian. They had a, a sexual relationship with each other prior to marriage um, that ceased after, you know, after Mark became a Christian. And then they resumed their sexual life together upon getting married, at which point, at least according to Mark, Grace turned kind of frigid with scare quotes around it. And they began to have problems and this seems to have been a uh, the the sexual side of it seems to have been a huge huge deal for mark and he more than once uses the phrase i wasn't enjoying her which makes my skin crawl a little bit um and this is a problem that continues for years and i did notice something else and this is not just a mark thing but in this first chapter the narrative kind of um, they seem to have a pattern of being unhappy, both having problems, but both repressing their problems, burying their issues, and losing themselves in, in work and ministry rather than seeking help. There was this continued kind of statement of, well, we thought about getting help, but, or we tried, we got, we tried to get a little advice, but it didn't really work. And so that to me was very, a red flag. I guess I should say. There's also a continued narrative in this chapter and in later chapters of grace seeing problems and repenting and making changes, but Mark not doing the same thing, okay? Things get better when grace begins to change and, and work through her issues. That's Mark's word. And then he comes along and then, oh, great, things are better now. My wife wants to have more sex. I'm doing fine like that. So that's kind of chapter one. And the other big thing in chapter one is there's this big issue in the book, which I was actually kind of surprised to, to not see more reviewers mention. Um, but Mark has this, Mark who and Grace are a, admittedly a little bit, I, I don't know what the, what the word is, Lambert reviewing it called the mystical. But 
Mark seems to definitely be a proponent of continuing revelation because he talks about being a young man and God speaking to him and God telling him to marry Grace and, and start a church and mentor men. And then later, after they've been having all these years of marital problems, Mark has a dream in which he sees Grace cheating on him as a teenager. And he confronts her with his dream and she admits that it is true. And he is just destroyed by her cheating on him when they first started dating, like 15 years before, and says that if he had known about this, he would not have married her, which is a, you know, a pretty intense. And also Grace uses the word righteous anger to describe Mark's anger in that moment, reacting to that situation, which sat very badly with me, because as far as I'm concerned, only God can have righteous anger because only God is truly righteous, but that's a whole other thing. Um, So anyway, that's kind of chapter one is this very troubled narrative of their marriage and why they needed to make things better. So that's chapter one. Chapter three, men and marriage is written by Mark. It's all his voice in most chapters and in a lot of chapters, they switch back and forth narrative voices. Um, though Grace writes the whole, dis, uh, the whole respectful wives chapter and Mark writes this whole men and marriage chapter. And he says that it's, he's going to be speaking to men as a man. And apparently that means that necessarily things will get rough. That's his word rough. He says, women, you can read this chapter, but things might get rough, which says a lot about his view of men, I think. And uh, he says that he, the men he's critiquing are caricatures of a certain type of man, seemingly without realizing that his masculine ideal is also something of a caricature. There's not a lot of self-awareness there. But the the caricature or the type that he's criticizing a lot in this chapter that he takes issue with are what he calls, quote, boys who can shave. He has a big problem with what he sees as this kind of extension of adolescence for some men of not wanting to embrace responsibility, wanting to just hang out with friends or play video games or, you know, live for pleasure or to consume and not to be creating or producing, you know, things in a job, producing children, whatever. And problematically, as Bauer points out, states that, quote, throughout history, men have followed or should have followed a certain pattern, according to Genesis, of leaving the parents' home, getting a job, paying his own bills, then meeting a woman, marrying her, and then having children. He says this is the pattern, which Bauer points out is not necessarily true and reflects a cultural norm that he's following. He's very intent about career, 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 that a man should have a career, not just a job, which is interesting. And then continues in the chapter talking about how men need to be not just tough, And not just tender, but tough and tender like Jesus is what he says. Um, And he points out that Jesus was, you know, tough with the the money changers in the temple or with false teachers. And that he was tender with women and children and people who needed to be healed. You know, which those things are, you know, pretty consistent. But it also is interesting to me that his paradigm of the pattern for men seems to contain no way... Uh, no way that a man who chooses uh, singleness could ever really be a man, which is problematic because he says Jesus is the ultimate man, but Jesus did not, you know, find a woman and have babies and, you know, follow that part of the pattern that he says men should follow. So that was just kind of interesting. And he, um, he abjures men not to be too soft, too amiable. I'm not sure what that means 
or too effeminate. And, um, and I'm going to kind of end my discussion of chapter three with um, a quote that I just can't not read because it's so ridiculous. And it's, it's on chapter 48, or sorry, on page 48. He's talking about what men should be like, and he's talking about this necessity for assuming responsibility rather than avoiding responsibility. And this is what he says. Men are like trucks. They drive smoother and straighter with a load. Adolescence delays this load carrying indefinitely. Wise men know this and load themselves up early in life to get their education, careers, families, and ministry started as soon as possible because it gives them a good head start on the fools. So load yourself up. Take responsibility for yourself. And that was just so problematic for me because he seems to not have a place either in his scheme for self-reflection, for pausing to think, about when might be a good time to take on these responsibilities or that it might be better to delay some parts of that collection of responsibilities for various reasons. Not to mention that there are a lot of people who would love to take on those responsibilities but haven't found someone who would like to marry themselves, you know, marry them. It's just very, I don't know, it seems like he's taking the things that he did and saying, and this should be the pattern, which is kind of par for the course for his kind of version of manhood. But anyway, that's just, just a quick rundown of chapters one and three. And I, I'm looking forward to, see, to seeing if you guys picked up on some of those same themes in the other chapters, the other sections of the book. Thanks, Katie. Um, I, I agree with much of what you said. Um, I do think that my main problem um, with the book was how reductive it was, particularly along gender lines. Um, there is a lot of men are like this and women are like this and sort of not a lot of gray area in between. So I'm glad that you touched on that. Uh, Lisa, would you like to weigh in here before we move on to your section of the book? I, th I think some of the themes are just present throughout the entire book. Uh, especially what you guys are talking about, how it seems like grace is the problem that needs to be fixed. Whether that's actually true or not, that's how the book does present itself. And whenever he talks about his past or something that he's dealing with, which he does talk a little bit about in my chapter, um, it, it's always very offhandedly, very obtusely, and something he's already conquered. And so I just I find that interesting as well, that that showed up in the sex chapter as well. And also to um, just some of the things he's saying about uh, singleness that comes up in my chapter, too, where it, it's almost he I, I think he meant I don't know what he meant. I don't know him, but I was hoping when he talked about, you know, being single, it would have had a different tone. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It's the same tone of there's something wrong with you <laughs> why are you still single <laughs> so I mean it, he talks about how to deal with singleness but in a very it, it to me didn't feel like a very compassionate way okay so um as we said, the first section of the book is on marriage, and the second section is on sex. Um, each chapter is about a different um, sort of sexual category. Um, chapter 6 talks about ways to view sex. Chapter 7, um, sort of horribly titled Disgrace and Grace, talks about Grace Driscoll's um, 
past with sexual abuse. Chapter 8 um, is about pornography and focuses way too much on men and not enough on women. Uh, chapter 9 is about selfish lovers and servant lovers. Of course, we want to be the latter and not the former. And chapter 10, which Lisa is going to talk uh, more in depth about, uh, is called Can We Blank? And I'll let her uh, <laughs> say more about what that okay. title is about. Okay, um, I'm going to very, very briefly talk about Chapter 9, Selfish Lovers and Servant Lovers, because I thought the title was a little bit intriguing. Um, He talks about selfishness being pride, and he spends a lot of time talking about that and unpacking that. And he doesn't really correlate that to the sexual relationship within marriage until much, much later uh, within that chapter. He does go back to Song of Songs. I heard both of you mention that that does appear to be a favorite with both of them, which is understandable. It is a very, um, it has a lot of sexual innuendo and poetry and that sort of thing. Uh, and for this one, he talks about selfishness might, and, you know, equaling pride might seem like a little thing, but it should be dealt with. And so he's talking about how Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 15, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. And so he feels that selfishness can destroy the marriage vine, basically. And so he keeps talking about how you can't let Satan get in between you and your spouse in the bedroom, which I thought was interesting. And, And he says that after giving an example of people that have kids sleeping in the bed with them. I'm like, okay, don't know why those were so close together, but um, it was just, it was interesting to put those together. And he talks about how you need to ask yourself, am I putting my sexual needs in front of my wife's sexual needs? Am I saying that, what I feel, what I think, what I need is more important than what you think, what you feel, and what you need. And he makes a very big point in this chapter about how problems outside the bedroom affect in those inside the bedroom. And so you can't be selfish in any part of the marriage in any way. You have to be a servant. And a servant is someone who loves, cares for, nurtures, encourages the other, one another. Those are servant lovers. So I thought it was interesting. I wouldn't say it was anything new. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure like everybody knew before they read the chapter after reading the title that they knew which one we're supposed to be. So, um, yeah, he didn't really dive into too much there about being a servant lover other than to say, you know, you, you want to give yourself freely to one another, you know, unless you've agreed not to. So and of course, that's a song we've also heard before. Okay, so going to chapter 10, can we blank? Uh, Mr. Driscoll feels that this chapter was necessary. Um, and some of what I'm talking about is on the website as well. Because this is supposedly the controversial chapter in the book. He claims that this chapter comes from people coming up to him in grace privately and saying, well, can we blank? in regard to the sexual relationship. And, you know, he's claims that people have filled in that blank in a variety of ways. And he thought it was very important to address it publicly because he feels that sex and the sexual relationship has been too private 
in Christian circles, and that's part of the problem. So he's addressing it. Um, one of the things that I found kind of interesting about this, and we were talking about this before we began recording, I've been married for 14 years. I've dated my husband a total of 20 years. So I, there is nothing he says here that I have not heard before. There are some things that I would have liked him to be a little more clear about, and I'll, I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, there are things I wish he had spent more time on, for sure, but I didn't hear anything new. So if you feel compelled to read this book for whatever reason, um, you could talk to a married couple at your church that you trust that would probably give you better advice and less um, ambiguous advice. And, and I think that that would be just as helpful. But let me just talk a little bit about the Can We chapter. Um, he talks about how God has given us freedom in the covenant of marriage to have sex. And this is a big gift, but it's like a big responsibility, which, of course, makes sense. And he says we are free according to conscience and conviction. Uh, if the two of us are in agreement, husband and wife being the two, prayerfully and carefully consider doing blank, then it's okay. However... He prefaces that with the following questions. Is it lawful? Is it helpful? And is it enslaving? And so can we blank? First and foremost, you both have to agree it's something you desire to do together, whatever that blank is. And then you have to go through these questions. And they're fairly straightforward. Um you know, is it illegal? Well, if you want to, basically what he's saying, like if you want to, if you're um, a 50-year-old man and you want to have sex with a five-year-old girl, well, that's illegal. So you can't do that. So no. Um, but then he moves into, is it legal before God? Just because the culture is allowing something doesn't mean that God's law does. And so you have to look at both. And then he did give a list of things that you can't do and they are pretty standard uh, things that you can't do. The only one that I thought was interesting and a bit ambiguous in his list was the one uh, titled Erotica. And I'm going to let Victoria weigh in a little bit here as well. I wished he would have defined that term a little more carefully and a little more closely uh, because I think it begged to have a definition. In his list of sexual sins that obviously when you say can we blank, these are things you can't do. Homosexuality, erotica, and that's the one that I think needed some definition. Bestiality, bisexuality, fornication, friends with benefits. I didn't actually understand the difference between fornication, sex before marriage, and friends with benefits, but okay. Adultery, swinging, prostitution, incest, rape, polygamy, polandry, sinful lust, pornography, pedophilia, sexual, sexually touching someone else in any way, with or without clothes on, that you're not married to. So that was kind of that big list of things that can we blank? Well, you can't do these things. And it's, it's, it's a pretty standard list. Um, it's nothing that, again, we haven't heard before. But except for that little, that word erotica, it kind of threw me for a little bit. I was like, well, gosh, I really wish he would have defined that. And I'm going to let Victoria weigh in a little bit here. 
Okay, so I also, um, independently of Lisa, drew question marks uh, around that section in the text because erotica didn't get a definition, and otherwise the list seems pretty standard. Um, Typically, erotica is defined... um, like a, a a little softer than softcore porn, um, and and it's a a fiction definition, a, a, a sort of publishing uh, designation as well. Um, erotica is erotic fiction, um, usually um, more descriptive and less visual, and thus usually feminized or geared to a feminine audience. So I, I sort of felt like that um, that the inclusion of erotica in the list was, in its kind of weird gender essentializing way, um, an equalizing inclusion, um, that it's sort of like the f- female side of pornography. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that that is 100% accurate as far as a definition, um, but I kind of felt like that's what the inclusion in the list of erotica was doing. Victoria, can I jump in for just a second? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you're right about that, I think, too, because if I remember, and Lisa can correct me because she's talking about the sex section, but I feel like in the porn chapter, they actually take issue with even, I think they say romance novels for women and talk about how they feel like that for women, it could be just as, as, the response could be just as strong as a man's to kind of more harder core things like software or hardcore porn. I could be wrong about that, but I think they said that. They do talk about that and they talk about fantasy and, you know, they do talk also in the sex chapters about fantasy and how that tends to be geared more toward women and you're not wrong Um, and how that's wrong as well because it's letting something get in between you and your husband. You shouldn't be having sex with your husband thinking about another man or even a movie star or somebody from a book. Um, That's wrong. You should be fantasizing about your husband. And so, um, yeah, they do talk about that. And, and the examples given were female having fantasy uh, in, in that kind of regard, you know, in the romance novel kind of regard. Um, what was interesting, too, is the next question, is it helpful? I actually kind of liked this section. Um, does, and I say that very carefully. Um, does the sexual activity, the blank, that you're filling in help or harm the marriage and I think that is an excellent question and I think that gets back to one of his early points that I also agree with why do you want to quote unquote do it and can I just Victoria you get it I'm going to give you a chance to talk about your class here I really hate all these little words for sex do it and all this other stuff he uses all that stuff to like the hilt so um I just it's so frustrating (laughs) but um So he actually says, well, why do you want to do it? You know, whatever it is, obviously it's something sexual. And I do think motivation is important, and I do think that's something to think about. Um, And so I didn't mind this section quite as much. Probably where it gets a little less interesting is when he lists the six reasons to have sex. And I like that there are six. (laughs) Um, My... uh, mother-in-law could testify to you to this audience that there used to be just one and that was the for the procreation of children and once that part of the marriage relationship was done it was promoted at least in their christian circles at the time many years ago you just don't have sex anymore so it's good to see that we've moved past this sort of 1930s 40s christian view of sex and there are now more than 
one reason. Um, he did talk about it being pleasurable, like for pleasure. Um, and he, he goes back to Song of Solomon for that, that in the Song of Solomon, it does not talk about children at all. In fact, we should say pleasure is number one on that yes, list of reasons. It is. It's number one. And I was very happy to see that. And I am happy to see that. And I, I really, really wish he had spent more time unpacking it. Because of the, of the six, I felt like that one didn't get enough time. Because um, certainly in Christian circles, I think we've all heard that we procreate to have children. That's not a new thing. I mean, that's, well, gosh, I sound like an idiot. Of course, you, you, that's one of the reasons you have children. That's how you have children. Um, so, I mean, there was, you know, we, I knew that would be in there. So I kind of read through that pretty quickly just because there was just nothing new being offered. When he talks about having sex for knowledge, I actually, that was kind of interesting. And I was kind of, I kind of wanted a, a little bit more exegesis there, just a little bit. You know, if you're going to go into Genesis 4, verse 1, and you're going to talk about a particular word, the word knew, says that, you know, saying Adam lay with his wife Eve, and he knew her. And, you know, he extrapolates this into um, more than having sex with her, that it's more than that. It's about, like, exploring each other's consciences and, like, all this other stuff. And I was hoping for just for a little bit more exegesis, maybe just like a little bit of word study there. Like, okay, what was the original Hebrew? How did you, how was that original Hebrew used elsewhere? You know, I, I wanted that. I was a little thirsty for that, but I am a theology nerd, so it could have just been me. Um, and then he said for protection, which is interesting. <laughs> um, I kind of laughed a little and I'm still laughing because I just thought that was a weird way to say what he was saying, that we have sex as man and wife for protection. I thought, oh, that's, a, that's an, okay. Uh, and what this is all about is temptation. And as soon as I started reading how he was unpacking it, I was like, okay, I get it. Um, you're having sex with your husband or your husband is having sex with you to avoid temptation, to have sex with somebody else. Uh, again, not really anything new. For comfort, I thought that was interesting. Um, and, okay, I read when I read this part about how we have sex to be comforted, the example he gives is when Bathsheba and David lose their infant son and how David goes to her and has sex with her and that's supposed to be comforting for her. I just felt like, really, all a woman needs is a good, you know – She'll just be so comforted, whatever's bothering her. I just, it just to me was a little ridiculous. It just, it just was a little ridiculous to me the way he was touting it. And you know what? Maybe you can find comfort in that. And I'm not saying you couldn't, but he's holding it in juxtaposition of how to deal with grief on some level. And I was like, yeah, you know, that's great. (laughs) Um, he, go ahead. he did. He did talk about it kind of flippantly, but um, people s- studies have been done, and I can I can link to this if we want. I, I hate to say like studies have shown without citing something, so I'll cite something. But studies have shown that people have sex after funerals a lot. Like it's it's sort of life or the the potential of making life as an antidote to death. So it it does sound kind of weird and cheesy, but this is a thing that people do. I've actually heard that too. 
Um, and I don't really have an issue with the science part of it. Like as human beings, it's a survival instinct. That's what I've read. And I hate to say, oh, I've read something without telling you what it is. But I've actually heard that too, that it's a survival instinct or a survival mechanism that's within us. That if we're around death, well, then we have to go make babies because then life will continue. And, and it's just the way I think that he went around talking about that. It just seems to me very old school, like a woman is comforted by a man. A woman will find comfort from a man. Whatever is bothering her, she just needs a man. Right. I get get that attitude of like, all she needs is a good, like you said, yeah, that's annoying. (laughs) That's annoying. That was a little bit, but I do agree that you can be comforted in the intimate sexual relationship. I'm not saying you can't be. It was just the way he talked about it. I think that I found a little grating. It wasn't that bad though. I've certainly read worse. Um, And then he talked about for the last one, reasons to have sex uh, is oneness to be together, to be one. And I kind of feel like um, Katie talked about that a little bit. Um, One thing I did like about this particular chapter uh, is it helpful. He talked a lot about abuse He talked about how you are not to make one another feel bullied, pushed, abused, or harassed, or assaulted, or imposed upon in any way. You are also not to make your your husband or wife feel taken advantage of, put upon, neglected, used, and abused. I thought that was actually very well said. Yeah, I I liked that part a lot. I liked specifically um, that the the last sort of blank filler, the last can we, um, is about marital rape and assault. Because I I feel like in a lot of Christian circles still, I mean, even even though society at large is, is talking about this much more than it used to, in a lot of Christian circles, marital rape is not a thing that is discussed as existing. Um, so I, I really liked um, that 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 is discussed and that it is said to be always 100% wrong. Yeah, and I I was applauding that. I mean, I I was so happy uh, that this person who is kind of a Christian celebrity is just out there saying this, you know, and I did like that. And I do commend him for saying that. And maybe that is controversial for some of his audience. Let me be very clear about that. For some of his audience, maybe that is very controversial. Because, Victoria, you're absolutely correct. There are Christians in this world who read Corinthians and other verses <laughs> throughout the Bible, and they s- stop, you know, part of it. Well, the woman is supposed to give herself to the man fully whenever he wants it, you know, and so, you know, you have to keep reading. And I thought that he addressed that, I thought, really well, just with the list of words and how, you know, each thing I thought was very important. Um, and then the last thing that he wants people to think about in the Can We chapter is, is it enslaving? And this is where he moves into his addiction. This is where he, to me, is just transitioning. He's He wants to talk about sex addiction and addiction in general. Um, he talks about the physiological response that we get when we have sex. Um, he, ca- he called it neurological, uh, but I think we all know what we're talking about. You feel good after you have sex and how that can be uh, addictive. And it wasn't just that that he talked about as well. He just he was very clear that sex can be an addiction. And he does he doesn't believe that the marriage relationship was designed to feed an addiction. So I thought that was very interesting as well. He talks a lot about alcoholism versus sex addiction. 
Um, but I think that's because that's closer to him. And this is a, this is one of those places where he talked about how, oh, he comes from a long line of severe alcoholics and bad, you know, all this, but I don't drink, you know? And so this is just another place where he's just a great guy. He's always been a great guy. <laughs> and so I guess I wish there was a little less on the alcoholism and a little bit more on the sex addiction. He does get into that though. Um, and he starts talking about pornography, and I do applaud that. I do think it is the secret sin of the church. I think it needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. I know this is several years ago now. Christianity Today uh, did some huge uh, survey, and it was it was very sad and very staggering to see how many – this was just with Christian leaders were watching pornography or viewing pornography. So it's definitely an issue, and I was glad to see that he at least addressed it. However, he does, um, at the very end of all of this, he talks about what it means to really be connected. And he has three levels, theologically, emotionally, financially. I'm sorry, there's more than three. Theologically, emotionally, financially, physically, and verbally, and sexually. Um, obviously, theologically, if you come together, he feels you should both worship God. Emotionally, you should love each other. Financially, you're doing life together. Physically, Physically, he says, it's just spending time in one another's presence. You can't be two ships passing in the night. Verbally, do you talk to each other? And sexually, this is interesting. Are you enjoying one another? And I thought that was interesting to, to put out there. Are you enjoying one another? Are you enjoying the gift that God has given you to the fullest extent that you can? And he said, if you're doing all of these things together and are connected on all of these levels, it's hard to break that kind of connection. Like Satan can't break that kind of connection. So I thought that was interesting as well. And then he talks about being a good steward with the gift of sexuality that we have been given. And I was going to end my section here um, with something I did also did, a, did agree with. Um, he said that parents need to discuss sex more openly and more precisely with their children. I 150,000% applaud that. I thought that was well said. I liked the addition of the word precisely. Um, I know that my mother never talked about sex with me once ever. <laughs> so um, there was no openness at all. And I don't think that's healthy. Um, I didn't have anyone to you know, ask questions of or things like that. And there are reasons for that that I won't get into, but I, I did like it that he did include that. And I'm assuming he did that because there's another book coming. As a writer myself, I feel like, oh, there's going to be another book, How to Talk to Your Kids About Sex. And so I almost feel like it was it was sort of blatantly sort of setting readers up to get the next book kind of a thing. But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's how I read it. And then he... The, just a final statement. He talks about if you can blank and still be faithful to God, then you can. And that was really what I got out of that section. The most considered, the most controversial section, which for the record, wasn't that controversial. Can you fill in a couple of the blanks? Can you talk about what a couple of the uh, blank fill-in topics were? Just mention two or three of them, just so our readers can get a little bit of specificity. Specificity. Well, do you guys want to do that? Just because I've been talking for so long, I don't want to be on a rant. 
Well, I I already I can. Um, I already oh, yeah. mentioned. Okay. <laughs> uh, I already mentioned um, that he discusses marital rape and assault. Um, there are also um, mentions of oral sex, mentions of sex toys, um, a couple other things. As you said, Lisa, not as this book is not, and this section of the book is not as controversial as it thinks it is. Um, but it is. Uh, I I sort of liked how um, Katie mentioned before that she sort of found uh, before we were recording that she found this section of the book um, kind of boring and and not as exciting as it said it was going to be. Um, I I liked that it was kind of boring. I liked that it was kind of clinical. Um, I liked that it set out. Um, certain parameters and said couples you should talk about what you're comfortable with and what you're not comfortable with these are conversations you should be comfortable with having as a married couple Um, as someone who as Lisa alluded to earlier um, does teach our college's human sexuality seminar Um, I'm forever talking about how we need to you know not use euphemisms and we need to be comfortable with our own bodies and we need to um, you know, be open with our partners in marriage and all of those things. So I, I thought that that discussion was was good and helpful. Yeah, I did too. And Victoria, Mark, and I are doing some premarital counseling, and I won't say who. Obviously, that would be inappropriate. And that's one of the things that they wanted to talk about. Like they didn't know how to talk about that, and they both kind of felt like you know the world had failed them a little bit because. They, they they know that after they're married, they're allowed to have sex, but they really hadn't talked about it other than they knew they weren't supposed to. And, you know, this is a couple getting married soon. So this is a young couple, you know, of this age. And so I definitely, I definitely agree with you. And I applaud your efforts and what you're doing. And I have to say something. I just want to say this about Victoria. I hear nothing but wonderful things about that class. Everyone that takes it feels that they are more equipped they feel more educated and they feel more able to talk about these things. And I will applaud Mark Driscoll for saying that, you know what, you do need to talk about these things and you shouldn't be. And he was saying how people say, well, it's awkward. It's embarrassing. And, you know, well, it's going to be awkward and embarrassing when you're doing it. So, I mean, I mean, you might as well be talking about it. And I, I kind of agree with that too. Um, I think there needs to be discussion and I think, Perhaps, you know, like Katie was talking about how they talked about needing to be friends first. Well, if you're not really friends, how are you going to talk about that kind of stuff? So I, I do I do see the importance of that as well. Right. And I um, Victoria, I was just going to say, too, real fast. I think I, I, I love what Lisa's saying about about the the importance of dialogue. Driscoll's talking about the importance of dialogue. I think I also thought that was great. And also, I think as she was alluding to a moment ago, they, they really make the point, And I think it's in the section of can we, where they talk about, can we use sexual medication? Um, they talk about there that while it may be really embarrassing to talk to a doctor about, Hey, I need some sexual medication, you know, to help me in my marriage. Um, but that it's important to out of love for your spouse to be humble enough to deal with the awkwardness of dealing with a situation. And I also thought that that was really, really good. This comes up again in the chapter on servant lovers. Um, that's one way to serve, be a servant lover, is to talk about these things and and to make it easy for your spouse to talk about it. And I thought that was pretty good. I mean, you you do need you need to not make it as a wife. 
if your husband is coming to you talking to you about something sexual, I don't think it's your job to make it more difficult for him to do that. Um, and so I, I did, I did like that too. And, and again, there were things I liked about the book. There were things I wish he had spent more time on and there were things I wish he had spent less time on. Okay. Uh, that sounds like a good transition into the third and final section of the book, uh, called the last day reverse engineering your marriage. Um, and this section is uh, is the shortest section of the book. Um, it's it is a chapter in and of itself. Um, it says the last day of your marriage is the most important day. Um, asks you to think about how you want the last day of your marriage to occur. Um, will it be because of divorce or untimely death, which of course are bad, or will it be after a long and happy life together, which of course is good. Uh, the Driscolls say to have a good marriage, passion and principles. They like alliteration a lot, by the way. There are a lot of alliterative lists in this book. Uh, passion and principles have to be joined with a plan, and that this final chapter is a homework assignment to help reverse engineer that plan. The plan is very detailed. 98 questions divided into 20 subcategories that are primarily about two things. One, appropriate priorities based on personal identities. Uh, in the following order, your first important identity is as a Christian. Your second personal uh, important personal identity is as a spouse. Um, and then after that, uh, parent, worker, um, it equates both paid and unpaid work, which I'm not sure is great, but okay. Um, and then any kind of church service goes after that, and there are a couple of blanks to fill in other identities you may occupy that are less important than the ones already listed. So first, um, there are priorities based on those things. And then secondly, it's about a balanced vision of the future that institutes a plan, but doesn't stick too closely to the plan, um, realizes that sometimes life events occur that may make you change the plan. Um, sometimes you want to just do things that are fun and spontaneous that change the plan. Uh, so I liked that. Um, and this this idea of the future is really diverse, too. They talk about... Um, spirituality, health, employment, family, and as we um, already mentioned, the importance of date night. So there's this long list of questions that you're supposed to go through with your spouse and sort of figure out how you can be on the same page about all these issues. Um, generally, I, I felt like um, I felt like the inclusion of this chapter at the end was good, um, primarily because the Driscolls state overtly that this list of questions is a guideline and that your marriage is not exactly like their marriage, which in a book that, as we've already said, is quite prone to overgeneralizing, um, I thought was great. So do either of you have comments about the third section? Uh, just to say that in the introduction, I know I talked about the preface earlier, but in the introduction, they talk about that, how these are principles. This is not steps to follow that are going to absolutely work for you. These are things to think about, discuss, pray about. This is to get you started. And I thought that was very humble to say, we're not saying what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is not going to be do this, do this, do this. It equals a good marriage. Um, instead, they're saying, we want you to think about principles. We want you to, you know, do what's best for you and your husband. And I thought that was at least very humble in the introduction. So it's nice to see they came back to that in the end. I am um, just, <laughs> I have to really be honest and say that this chapter kind of made me tired. <laughs> um, and 
And in part, that could be because I am a person who actually enjoys planning, but my plans don't tend to have any anything like this level of detail. And so my, my collar started getting a little tight when there were really specific questions about what's your date night going to look like in 10 years and things of that nature. But I do think it's maybe would be a great chapter for maybe young people who are kind of about to get married or who are recently married and who kind of maybe still have the idea that that the love will get them through and that, you know, that the passion is enough to make a good marriage. Because I do think it's important to stress that you should plan together, plan for the future, and not even just in kind of concrete ways like financially, but but think about what you want your life to be. Because otherwise, I think sometimes as circumstances change, maybe you have a child and you have to have discussions about are we both going to continue to work, things like that. As circumstances change, if you haven't kind of looked ahead, things can sometimes get a little contentious. So I do think it's a good idea to have a plan, though this particular plan seemed to me, for me, was very specific in, in the ways that to me were kind of funny. But anyway. Yeah, it's it's a little overwhelming. 98 questions. Uh, and also something that I thought was interesting, even though, like you, Katie, I am a planner. I love lists. I love all that stuff. It's great, and I love doing it. Um, I have so many color-coded spreadsheets on my computer. It's maybe a problem. But um, Something that they suggest um, in enacting the list is go on a romantic weekend getaway and do this homework assignment together. And I thought, that sounds like the worst weekend getaway ever. Yeah. I kind of had to agree with that. Um, I, I just echo both of you. I've been married a long time and... I think that it's good to have a plan and all of that there. It's just, I guess for me, maybe I'm very blessed. You know, I didn't have to go through all that to have a healthy monogamous relationship with my husband. Um, I, I just, it seems a little ludicrous that somebody really would sit down and, you know, be that detailed to me. Um, and and I, I don't know if we're allowed to talk about personal things, but I don't want to be that detailed in that aspect of my life, you know? I just to me it needs to be a little more spontaneous than that. But maybe that's a, you know, now today thirty seven year old woman talking after fourteen years of marriage. But um I guess to me I just it it seemed a little silly that somebody might actually be that detailed in their plan. I don't know. No, I agree with you, Lisa, and and with Katie, who um, said, you know, this list seems like it would be most useful for a couple who is not yet married, who is trying to figure out if they are on the same page about what they want these issues to look like. So, yeah, I agree. And uh, that's going to get us out of uh, the meat of the show into our third and final segment, uh, Passing On, where we give you recommendations of things we think you should check out Katie, you go first. Um, Okay, so my recommendation this week is kind of interesting because I'm actually going to recommend a work of fiction. But as I was reading this book, in which is presented a very, a very complementary view of marriage, with a husband who, to my mind, actually leans a little bit more toward almost an authoritarian um, mentality than complementarian, and also, and this is you know. A little bit, just a quick little bit personal about me. As a person who I would call, I would call myself theoretically complementarian, but the way that our house functions is very much from the outside probably looks very egalitarian in that we both work, we both are scholars, we both help take care of our home and our child. This book actually made me 
think a lot about my view of marriage and about the issues of combining things like in a woman, the issues for a woman to combine things like a life of the mind with marriage, home, family, things like that. And so with those thoughts kind of swirling in my head this week, I would really like to recommend Dorothy Sayers' novel, Gaudy Night, which was written in 1937. And the book itself is the kind of culmination of a series of mystery novels in which her main detective, Peter Whimsey, has been pursuing a woman um, for purposes of marriage, and she has been resisting his advances. And Gaudy Knight kind of tells a story of her, her final kind of wrangle with can I embark upon marriage and family and a relationship like that and still maintain an independent identity, a, a, a life of the mind? Are those two things compatible or do you have to choose? And the book is just a fascinating kind of rumination on that as well as just a very interesting detective novel. So that's my recommendation this week is Dorothy Sayers' Gaudy Night. Thanks, Katie. Uh, Lisa, what do you have for us? Well, I thought I would offer Red Hot Monogamy, and it's by Bill and Pam Farrell. I got to hear Pam speak. I did not get to hear her husband because I was at a women's uh, retreat type of thing, women of faith conference kind of thing. And it, she is fun, funny, and talks about sex. And I actually found her, berg, her, berg, her book a little more controversial than um, – the one we were just talking about than uh, Mark Driscoll's just because she doesn't pull back from, you know, those things that are too difficult to talk about. And she's very prone to saying that uh, the best sex in the world occurs between married couples. And if that's not happening in your marriage, it should be. And she talks about ways to get yourself up to, you know, red hot monogamy and so I, I do recommend this book. Um, it, it's fun. It's funny. And if you ever get the chance to hear her speak or him, sometimes they speak together, it's well worth it. Okay. Well, uh, I am following that with something a lot more boring, not quite as exciting. Um, as Lisa and I both mentioned earlier, I teach our college's human sexuality seminar, um, and I am recommending the main textbook from that, um, which is called Authentic Human Sexuality, an Integrated Christian Approach. Um, it's by a married couple who are both counselors and sex therapists, and something that I think that book is really good at that, um, that the Driscoll's book is not so great at is that its, um, its approach is much more holistic. Um, it covers f four sort of main branches of discussion, biology, sociology, anthropology, and theology. So as Katie was saying, um, the Driscoll's book seems to equate theology and sociology a lot, um, says that the biblical way and sort of the social norm are one and the same when sometimes they're not. So this book, while it is a textbook and not a self-help book, um, remedies that I think a little bit and also has um, some really good discussions about ways the church can help people deal with sexual sin um, things like um, abuse and pornography and, and that type of thing so that's my recommendation thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast we'd love to hear from you if you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show or if you just want to say hi you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com 
For show notes from this and other episodes, check out christianhumanist.org. For Lisa Cordles and Katie Grubbs, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Come back and listen again in two weeks for our discussion of Frank Schaefer's Sex, Mom, and God. Until then, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. She was told when she was young, all the blondes always got more fun. Lie, 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 dirty lie, da da da. Perfect hair, perfect waist, with a perfect prom queen smile upon her face.